Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 383. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 383 you're listening to. My guest today is producer engineer Michael Cumming, originally from the UK, now based in Philadelphia. He's worked with the Sun Ra Orchestra, Orion Sun, Odin Pope, Tom Hamilton, Sophie Coran, and Trap Rabbit. And you can check him out at treaclemindrecording.com. That's T-R-E-A-C-L-E-M-I-N recording.com. Yeah, check that out. We talk about his journey from the UK to the United States, getting up and running here and his past. And we have a great conversation, as usual. And I really think you're going to enjoy it. So Michael Cumming, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. I'm going to do another Dolby Atmos update. That's right. This is the post-Dolby calibration tuning update. Well, so here's how it went. Last Friday, Jonathan Lesner from Dolby came over and basically spent the entire day here calibrating the room. We stopped for lunch, of course, and we stopped for dinner. Took his time, did a great job, and the room sounds amazing. And we played back some Atmos tracks. It's really amazing how it sounds. It's kind of shocking, actually. And I cannot wait to get cracking at some mixes. I have kind of a backlog of some things of my own. I have some clients that want to do some stuff. And um, yeah, going to get going on it. Here's how that went. He set up a series of six biodynamic measurement mics, and he set them up in this little array in the listening position so that you get the, you know, kind of a large sweet spot. And he ran that all into a Roland eight channel interface, which fed uh, smart. That's what it's called, right? And took all kinds of measurements. And the six mics, I guess the way it works in smart, and I'm passing along information that I think I heard him say, I think it takes a a culmination of all the mics. So there's no phase issues that that I'm aware of, because that was my concern. I was like, aren't there going to be phase issues if those mics are in that kind of array that close? And he explained part of it went over my head and part of it, you know, kind of sat with me, but very cool. We shot every single speaker. For those that might be asking, not only did we use the subwoofer to channel LFE information there, but we also used it for some bass management. For those of you that don't know what bass management is, you know, like a speaker will have so much of a frequency response and then it starts to drop off at some point in the low end. And so the the subwoofer helps offset that. And between the balance of those two speakers, the subwoofer and say the surround speakers in this case, Uh, we were able to have a more fully realized frequency response. Uh, The LCRs are not bass managed and just the surrounds are. And my placement, I was really freaked out about that. I just, you know, he walked in, I said, is this going to work? And he said, yeah, this is perfect. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because in this process, there's so much to learn and you just have to take it in little chunks. So for those of you out there considering Atmos, just take it in chunks. Obviously, you got to get over the hump of what speakers am I going to get? What uh, I think it's what they call the B chain, which is, you know, what control are you going to get? You know, in my case, of course, you know, I went with the Grace M908, I went with PMC speakers, except for the sub, which is a Cali Audio sub, a WS12. I had to take it in chunks because I would get so much information off of one visit with somebody that I'd have to kind of compartmentalize it. I think that's the best way to handle it. So, you know, once I got everything connected up and running, then I had to set my mind to, okay, now we're gonna calibrate and that's gonna be on this date with this person and this is how that's gonna go. And now the room's calibrated and now, you know, it's on to the business of mixing. And, you know, obviously there's, you know, a lot of networking one has to do to generate the utmost business, right? Because you can't just build it and expect people to show up. You actually have to do a, a bit of sales to make it happen. So what else can I tell you? 
the speakers. The speakers worked out great. And just to recap, the LCR or PMC Result 6s, the LFE channel, the sub, is uh, Cali Audio WS12. And the surrounds are all PMC CI30s. Yeah. And the Grace controller is, once again, the B-Chain. That's a new term to me. I'm, I'm not really clear where I heard that at what point, but somebody said, what's your B-Chain? And I said, what's the B-Chain? They said, what controller are you using? I said, the Grace M908. Ah, there we go. The Grace turned out to be really great. It was a great choice for me. And what's really interesting is, is on each channel, you can have delay settings uh, to time align all the speakers so that everything's in phase, which is great. You can have level offsets. You can have choose to have bass management and all the details that come with that. And of course you can have correction EQ on each channel. When it all was said and done, you know, we used up the DSP and the Grace on all the Dolby stuff. And then after Jonathan left, I realized, well, wait a minute, I'm gonna need a separate stereo setup because the Dolby curve is unique to Dolby and everything that that does. So I asked Jonathan, I said, I shouldn't mix in stereo through this curve, right? And he said, uh, no, I wouldn't do that. And so I realized, okay, well, how's that gonna work on the Grace? Well, the Grace allows for different workflows. So I have a Dolby Atmos workflow, and then I just hit a little load button. I can load a completely different workflow with a completely different setup, which is really great. So I'm able to then create a separate stereo setup with a whole setup that differs from the Dolby deal. You know, different EQs. Obviously, I'm going to use the same delay offsets that that we used in the uh, in the Dolby setup, but because I'm only using the left and the right, and I actually decided to incorporate the sub once I learned how to do the bass management features, and so I went through and I, you know, I did a setup on my own. I brought out my Earthworks measurement mic and I set up fuzz measure and I took some readings and I got the left and the right EQ wise pretty close, but I needed to do a little bit more. So I decided to check out sound ID reference, which is the new Sonarworks thing. So I, I popped that in, I put on the trial and ran it, did the whole setup again. I used to have Sonarworks back in the day. And at some point they, they did some sponsoring of the show they're not a sponsor now, but anyways, I went ahead and went back to that and tried that. Worked out really great. It read that, you know, it could see the EQ points that I had already got in place and saw that it was close. And so it didn't have to do that much correction. Long story short, it allowed me to really dial in the stereo setup. So it sounds fantastic. I'm really excited about that. So I have a stereo workflow now that sounds great. And I have a Dolby Atmos workflow that sounds great. It's the bee's knees, man. I'm telling you, this, this 908 is just awesome. And there's still much to learn about it. And even though I had the 905, this thing is just full of surprises, you know, positive surprises. And I'm digging it. So I highly recommend the setup that I got. But everybody's got, you know, different needs and different things that are important to them. So that's the bulk of it, really. Uh, I'm up and running and I'm super happy. If you have any questions about the gear, about, you know, concerns of yours, whatever, you want to know some more, uh, send me an email, mattatworkingclassaudio.com. I'll do my best to answer. Yeah. So that's it. Up and running. Dolby Atmos. The journey continues. And that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You can talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. All right, let's get to it. Michael Cumming here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. Well, it's nice to have you. You're uh, talking to us from your studio in Philadelphia, are you not? Yeah, correct. Yeah, um, Philly-based now, here in this room that we kind of put together over the last couple of years. Not often one hears a person with an English accent say Philly-based. Yes. <laughs> I definitely get a lot of people go, so so why Philly? Of all the places, you didn't go to New York or LA or somewhere else. You went to Philly? Really? Like, what happened? I would joke for a time that I, I you know, I went for a swim, I got a bit lost and I ended up here, <laughs> which is silly. But yeah, Philly-based, originally from London, but now based in Philly. Well- Let's talk about that. What brought you to Philadelphia? Couple things. My now wife was from Philly originally, and she was living in the UK for a time. And so we kind of met there and got together on a shared love of music. She's a musician and composer and a songwriter as well. So we connected on that and ended up making like a short EP, a couple of tracks together, because I had a studio back there she was staying over there. She had to come back here for a little bit. And then she won a competition to stay to get a years at a songwriting school back in London, which happened to be like five minutes from my house. So we were together there for another year. And then we were just trying to figure out, hey, can we both either figure out a way to live in London or should we go to the US? And I had come out to visit a couple of times for a month at a time. And just fell in love with the music scene and fell in love with the people and the American way of life was really awesome. I <laughs> enjoyed it. Things were a little more easygoing and people were a little nicer just from the get-go, which is funny, I guess, because a lot of people go, you say, you say people in Philly are nicer? And I'm like, yeah, actually, you know, it's it generally feels that way. So just ended up coming to Philly together and, and making a go of it here. Well, let's let's come back to that and let's go back to your roots where you grew up. You grew up in London, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. London born and raised. Tell me about your upbringing in regards to, you know, music or electronics or was there anybody in your life that 
introduced you to the traditional things like, you know, many people come across cassette recorders or four tracks or whatever. What was your introduction? There was a couple of people. I had always been like really interested in music. My brother was was a little bit older and he was a musician. He played bass and guitar and he, to me, was just like the coolest person in the world. And so growing up, seeing him playing in bands and doing the bass thing and doing all that kind of stuff, I was like, man, this is so cool. I just want to find a way to do that. This looks like a lot of fun. And then as I got a little bit older, I saw that you could be behind the glass, if you will, that you could do the behind the scenes. I saw someone using a mixing desk and I thought, hey, this is really cool. Like maybe actually I want to be more involved in that side. And then I had some opportunities through my high school they had a program where you could run the sound and lights for the school essentially Mm. and like fell into it that way in terms of like the recording thing growing up i was always interested in recording i would record on a cassette player that my folks got me that was just like a little boomboxy type of thing and you could record onto cassettes on it and i would record radio shows and stuff like that pretend we were going live and i got into pirate radio for a time i was like hey man maybe i'll build a transmitter when i was like 10 years old i was like can i can i build a transmitter is this possible and it turns out it's a little more complicated than than (laughs) quite that but uh, (laughs) so that sparked my involvement in the the more recorded or produced element and I I was always listening to music that my brother was playing and really fascinated by the sounds and really fascinated by like hey these drums sound super aggressive or like oh I love the strings on this or something and not really understanding why or what that was about at that moment in time and now I guess I look back and I think like oh yeah that that kind of makes sense a bit more but yeah that was kind of my my way into it through the high school thing and then they would do a big show every year with the high school, mm. big production. It was more like live theater based stuff with a small orchestra-ish type of situation and a play. So maybe like The King and I or Oliver, or the standard high school thing. Um, and I got involved doing that. And I just remember it being more fun than I ever had doing anything else in school. It was kind of like for two weeks of a year, we got a week of dress rehearsals where we we were hanging out we weren't in school we were there just doing the show and then we had a week of shows i think and it was just awesome i started the first year running mike packs and then the second year i was mixing the show with one other person and the third year mixing the show and then started third year getting to like designing the rig and there was that was another person that was actually one of the other people there he was a student in the last couple of years of the school and he had his own like lighting company he made a sound and lighting company so that he he'd figured out that he could charge the school to rent all his gear from him if he had made it a little more efficient i was like i like this guy he's a cool guy he's doing it so i learned a lot from from him in terms of he was the first person that explained a gate to me and the first person that explained this is a condenser microphone and this is what it does and hey these are dynamics and you know these are the lavalier microphones and they pick up in an omni pattern and all of these things so that was just the only thing i really looked forward to in school and in fact i ended up dropping out but i i made the conscious decision to like hey if I can wait two more weeks, we do our production. And then I just kind of made up my mind. I said, I'm going to do this and I'm just going to leave and not come back, essentially. You're going to leave school? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a big decision. How did that fly at home? You know, I think at first my folks were a little bit worried, but I think they realized that maybe I wasn't super happy in school. It just wasn't, you know, some people get what they need from school. And I was not necessarily one of those people. But yeah, being 17 or something, it's like, well, how do you know what you want to do for the rest of your life? School maybe is a great way to set yourself up for something. But for me, the pros of it didn't outweigh the cons of being there for me. Ah, okay. So yeah. I like tremble thinking of one of my kids coming to me and saying, (laughs) I'm dropping out of school. I'd be like, "Uh, no, you're not. (laughs) Yeah. I was definitely lucky. My folks were supportive and I started working pretty much straight away. Another one of my passions was food. I had wanted to be a chef Mm. as well. These were the two things that were kind of parallels, the music and cooking. And so as soon as I dropped out, I think I had like a maybe a month where I wasn't doing anything. And then I got a job in a restaurant pretty much straight away. So I was working 
And I think that definitely put my parents' minds at ease a little bit. It's like, okay, he's, he's doing something. He's got a job. So you weren't interested in school, but you were interested in getting into, into a job. Yeah, I definitely wanted to do something. Just for me, it wasn't school. It wasn't being in school and then going to university, pursuing that. For a time, I, I was thinking, hey, I could do that. And then it just didn't make sense to do more schooling for something. I, I was looking at courses for doing actually sound engineering and stuff like that. I was looking at the SAE course. There was a place in London at the time called Alchemea. Those two were like the big private schools that would offer a course. And it was like very expensive and you definitely got like hands-on with consoles and, and all of that kind of stuff. Being from the UK, we we didn't have like money saved up to go to college or anything. And this was definitely more in the, in that price range of what people in America think of, of like, hey, this is what college costs. Because in the UK, growing up, college was very cheap. So you didn't really set money aside to go there. So I ended up working in the kitchen for three years and that allowed me money to do other things, to learn a lot. And I kind of had thought about it as, hey, I can take this skill anywhere in the world and travel and I also really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. It's definitely a hard life with long hours and really hard work, but it was fun as well. And it allowed me to save some money and buy some gear and buy some microphones and start that slippery slope. Well, you know, the good thing about working in a kitchen is that you will never go hungry. There's always food around to eat and you may not be making a whole bunch, but you'll definitely eat. Yes, that was definitely a plus side. Being able to be fed and not have to worry about that was was really awesome. Were you continuing to live at home? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. I was still living at home at that time. And I was certainly very lucky to have that kind of little bit of a damper and support from my folks in terms of not being on the streets in London. It's very expensive to live anywhere in London. And so that was nice to be able to do that. And I'm definitely super grateful for that. But you mentioned using money to by microphones. Were you in fact doing that? Yeah. What happened is I had dropped out. I had started working in this restaurant and I had actually gone to school pretty far away from where I lived, like halfway across London. And I was hanging out near where I lived. And one of my friends was like, Hey, what are you doing tonight? I'm going to this party. And I was like, that sounds great. So we went, I was just hanging out there and I met this guy and he was basically like, oh man, what, what do you want to do? And I'm like, well, I, I'm doing this, but I, I kind of get into sound engineering. He said, oh, no way. Like me too. My dad's a sound engineer. And I was like, oh, cool. And we just like, it's kind of funny. Like we are instant best friends from that moment on. And he introduced me to some of his other friends and they were actually starting a band. And so I got involved with that and we started doing studio things together. And so, yeah, I, I had some money saved and I think I got three 57s. One of them turned out to be fake. And I got like a, a Pro 40 and I had Logic 9 or something at the time. Or I had GarageBand originally, but I had Logic 9 and that was the, the start of it. When was your first, what you would consider professional gig? It would have been, I think I would have been 18, maybe 19 and... We had done a bunch of recording in various places. This guy's dad had worked in an audio rental company in the UK, in London. So we had access to these studios and we had been recording a bunch of stuff here and then mixing it ourselves. And then slowly we got to the stage of, hey, maybe if we record somewhere nicer and mix it ourselves, that would be better. And then we ended up doing that. And then we got to the thing of like, hey, actually, maybe if we record somewhere nicer and get them to mix it too, it's going to be even better. And we had found a place there which was called octopus music in this building which was the bbmc which is the brent black music community center or something and it was this old studio building left from the late 70s early 80s super dusty really cool building one of those buildings you go into and you kind of like walk through a few closed doors and end up in this studio and it was a huge building but you only ever saw a very little part of it because all these doors were locked and there must have been like lots of crazy stuff old tape libraries and all, all this stuff that thinking back now I'm like wow I wish I had explored a little bit more but we met these guys there and we just became friends as we made this three track demo EP type of thing with them and we'd basically said like, hey, can we help out anytime? Like, can I 
come and help out me and my friend who was also in the band. And so we ended up going and helping out there and they would maybe pay us a little bit to assist or something like that. And so that was probably the first time professionally working on someone else's music was helping those guys out. Just so I'm clear, were you actually in the band or were you part of the band structure as like a sound guy? I was in the band. I was playing drums at the time. I had grown up playing drums a little bit. My brother played bass. And so I was like, oh, what, what am I going to do? And drums seemed like the choice that made sense. So I was playing drums in that band. Not very well, but playing the drums. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we were all kind of engineers in a way. It was one of those bands that I'm sure you have in studio experience of bands that come in and everyone's kind of an engineer. I guess we were those people where we were all interested in that, certainly. And where did you go from there? What did this evolve into? We ended up building a studio just outside of London and cutting our teeth on that side of things, learning about the room within the room and treatment and bass buildup and room sizes and ratios and all of this kind of stuff. So we built this studio and it took far too long. It probably took like a year and a half and we did it from the ground up. My friend's dad had this warehouse space. I remember like having the Rod Gervais build it like the pros, like the studio building Bible, if you will. If you look at studio building stuff, everyone's like, you need this book. This is Mm -hmm. where you need to start. And we opened it and we were so green. We were looking through this and we're like, oh yeah, but it doesn't tell you how to put up stub work type of thing. (laughs) You know, and we're like, how do you do that? (laughs) We didn't know. We had no idea like how stupid it was for us to think that we could do this. And that's honestly why we could do it because we didn't know. We didn't know what we didn't know. So we ended up building this studio over over the course of probably a year. We'd go on the train up and spend three days there building covered in dust, not eating very well, but eating and having a good time, listening to a lot of music and dreaming big, being like, oh yeah, in five years, you know, when this place is doing all this kind of stuff, we're going to have that sound, man, and all this stuff, you know, so. Were you still working at the restaurant? At this time? I think so, or I I was working in a different restaurant at the time. Mm. And I think I was doing a lot of early morning shifts. So we'd open at six, six o'clock and then leave at three or four and and have the rest of the day and then work a few days a week and then do the rest. So how did the studio come out? Did you, you completed it? We completed it. It was cool. Honestly, we, we built a nice room, partly by accident, partly by just being so scared of messing it up that we spent far too much time on every small element we don't have it anymore, but funnily enough, I actually saw on Instagram a, a few months ago, a band that I had ended up recording around that time, they now have it. They now rent the building that it's in. So it still exists as a studio, which is is nice because it was really, you know, a labor of love. We definitely knew where every screw and cable was and, you know, every, everything about that we could probably tell you in our sleep. Wow, that's a testament to your building skills as well, that it didn't fall down or burn down or... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Such a, uh, I know that you kind of look back on that time and, and laugh a little, but I mean, what an incredible learning experience. I mean, everything from building and acoustics and how to run a studio to relationships and how to navigate, you know, business relationships in a, in a studio, how to work with people. What mm-hmm. are some of the other things that you can think of that you learned or, or what are the takeaways for you personally that you remember from that time period? of that studio. I mean, you really hit a lot of nails on the on the head there in terms of all of those things. We were in business with our friends and that can be really awesome and it can also be really tough because, <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm sure you've been there because you may all like love each other like brothers, but that can also mean you fight like brothers too. So there is that. And this is something that got cemented by some later experiences as well, but I think communication is really key and it sounds very cheesy but just having the ability to communicate openly before things stew is super important and to be on the same page about some stuff or at least be allowed to be on different pages maybe for example we had definitely different concepts in how we should run it in terms of outreach and stuff like that and so There were some frustrations about that, but ultimately it was okay in the end. When you say not let things build up, do you think the key to that is the minute you identify something as problematic for you that somebody else is doing, 
Is that the time to bring it up and say, hey, you know, that, that kind of bothers me a little bit? I think so. I think it's very important to do that. It's very important to be able to have an environment where everyone feels like they can do that as well. Because if you don't, you just let these things build up and then it becomes a thing like, no, fuck you. Like, I can't believe you would do this. You know, it's like all that kind of stuff. And for the last two years, you've been doing this thing. Right. And the person's like, I didn't know. Like, and now I'm thinking like, man, what else was there and all this stuff? So, yeah, communication is key. And I think it's also understanding how to communicate. Like, you can't just say, like, hey, your vocal sucks. It's like, your vocal is not as good as it can be, and here's how we can change it. Like, maybe there are solutions. It's not just like, this is terrible. But then maybe sometimes you do just have to be like, hey, I I don't know. I'm just expressing how I feel. Yeah, having a solution or having an alternative way of of handling it is always a a very diplomatic way to deal with it. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. So how long did you guys run this studio for? So it was probably for a year or so. And then me and the other guy ended up leaving quite suddenly because something boiled over and it didn't, it didn't work out super well. Uh. Yeah, we, we took our things and we ended up leaving and setting back up in London again. That was definitely a complex situation. But like you said, you learned a lot from it and there were definitely things that I learned there that I know to avoid now or stuff that I know just you know it was a learning experience it's something that you can build on yeah for sure it's expensive to operate in London so you know you say you left the studio you built and you set up back again in London where did you set up how did you recover from that so two things first up I was still at home so I was very lucky that my folks allowed me to take over like a room in the house and just fill it full of gear, which was kind of crazy. I can't believe that they put up with that for for as long as they did. So I set up, I essentially had my bed and under my bed was our console. And then in the room next door was some sound baffles that I had built and a bunch of microphone stands and a drum kit. And it happened to have quite high ceilings, so it sounded pretty good, honestly. And it had a big bookshelf on one side. That wasn't honestly really the plan, but we just moved everything and ended up like stuffing it in my room. And then one day I was like, hey man, I'm, I'm going to set the console up if you don't mind, because it was his console. We had shared a bunch of gear, pulled a bunch of gear, and he was like, yeah man, I think, think that would be good. So we set it up and just started operating there. This was a house or was it a flat or? It was a flat. But it had the bottom floor and then half of a f- floor above it. So the, the live room, if you will, was actually below people in the, in the flat above. Okay. And that caused some trouble a couple times. I uh, bet it did. <laughs> you know, like, hey, why are you still recording drums? You've been playing drums all day. Like, why are you still playing drums? You know, but it, it was okay. It actually honestly <laughs> worked out okay. I would just, I had a, a couple sessions that I booked, which was a band. And they were like, hey, let's book three days and let's do this. And we had met them from our old studio and they still wanted to work with us and so they would they drove down to london and would work with us yeah i just ended up leaving the people upstairs bottles of wine and bars of chocolate and stuff and be like i'm gonna be recording this weekend (laughs) sorry wow yeah that is a thing you know that's legit what you just said if you're going to be inconveniencing anybody around you acknowledge it own up to it and reward them for tolerating it Absolutely. And we, it wasn't like, hey, it's 12 at night or like one in the morning, we're still playing drums. Like we could never do that. We'd finish at eight in the evening, really was the latest we'd ever go. But if you're doing that 10 to eight for three days, people might be a bit like, man, I, I didn't move next to a venue, did I? What's, what's going on? It only happened a few times that we did that. So they were very nice about it. Very appreciative for that. Your time in London, was it mostly spent in personal studio situations like this? It was that. And then when we ended up coming back from this spot, we started to do a lot more work with the guys at Octopus Music. And they really took me and my friend under under their wings. And that was the start of my real professional studio experience you know, someone else's studio working in someone else's studio. So we were assisting and then it turned out that I think I had a session one one day where the engineer James called me up and said, bro, 
the band, they didn't bring their symbols. And I live 10 minutes away. So I'm like, sure, man, whatever. And I turned up with my symbols. And that was kind of the real solidification of getting a, my foot in the door with those guys. And then just doing whatever I could to be helpful to them and make it easy for them to let me hang out in the room and just be like, oh, what, what are you doing there? You know, what's, what's this that you're doing? Like, how are you recording those drums? Like, what are you thinking about? So... Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Sampley, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Sampley.app or Sampley.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. We already established early on in high school that you were not really built for school. It's just not how you were wired. Right. So clearly not going to a recording school was not going to be in the cards really, do you think? It was something I really had thought about and wanted to do. I had looked at some things, but I was honestly kind of scared that I was going to go there. I have this personality flaw where I, I don't like people telling me to do something, even if I really want to do it. And someone says like, hey, you should learn that. I'm like, fuck, I don't want to learn that anymore. Right. I don't know what it is. It's not a good thing. So I had thought about it, but I was scared that I'd end up having to write an essay about miking a drum kit and I would just not care anymore. I wanted to be there miking a drum kit. That's the way that I found that I learned was like, I need to do this. Otherwise this information, I just don't care. I don't retain it. It's not something that sticks with me. I'm definitely more of a practical learner. Yeah. I had thought about the recording school thing, but I was worried that I would get there and hate it essentially, or have to write lots of essays or have to do all that kind of stuff. And that just wasn't something I was into. Did you take pleasure in just jumping in with both feet and doing it and failing in some cases and really going, okay, right. I'm going to self-correct here. This is how you do this. Absolutely. I think there's a lot to be said for that. For me, I, I really enjoy that self-found knowledge or being able to learn through experience was like super powerful. And I, I really enjoyed that. It was a lot of fun and really scary at times. There was definitely a period of a couple of years where I was starting to do sessions and I would be in a session and someone's asking me to do something I have no idea. I, I'm like, man, I, I don't know Pro Tools enough yet, but I was just kind of there running a session. I'm like, oh boy, thinking like, man, why did I, why did I think this was a good idea? This is the worst idea I've ever had, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so how long did you stay at Octopus? I was there for three years. I was there for three years doing stuff and it went from, hey, come and help out and assist to like, the engineer's got to run and go and pick something up or he's got a gig tonight. Can you continue the session when he goes to do the gig to like, hey, we're calling you because this band wants to do this thing. Mm. So it was three years, three years that I was there. Did you feel like you upped your game by being there? Absolutely. I learned a lot from those guys in terms of, again, the business thing and the management because they were renting in that building and the building was owned by someone else. They had a lot of really cool gear there and they had a really cool console, 
but they didn't use it. It was covered up and they had a bunch of like thermionic culture stuff and old gear, but it was all like broken and they didn't want to put the money into it to fix it up because it wasn't their stuff. They didn't own it and so it didn't make sense. And so learning more of that kind of stuff from being in that situation was, again, super, super valuable. So the time you were at Octopus and the time you ended up moving to Philadelphia, were there any significant recording events or career events that took place before that move? I just kept getting cool sessions. I was always trying to find more people to record. I actually had someone come from Philadelphia who I had met and they really wanted to make an album and they came to London for two weeks and we made we made a record. And that was a significant thing because it was like, oh, okay, we must be doing something right if someone's willing to travel to pay the ticket and come and trust you to do that. So that was like a significant moment. I got to work with a lot of pretty serious musicians at that spot. They had connections with the, the Amy Winehouse band. There were a lot of those guys in that local area. So I got to do a bunch of sessions, either assisting or, or engineering with a bunch of those guys. And I remember my first time in that studio, to go back to that, I saw a group of guys come in and put down some tunes and it was just five guys in a room and the engineer set up the mics and they recorded and they played the thing. And I was like, oh, this just sounds finished. You know, this sounds like a record. And that was definitely a significant moment because I was like, oh, these are just really good musicians together. The engineer is doing a lot, but not doing a lot at the same time. And it just kind of all came together. So that was another thing that was really cool to see. That was also at Octopus? Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. When did you meet your wife and help me bridge the gap here to get to Philadelphia? I would have met her at some point when I still had the other studio outside of London. We had done some work there and then we were together working on stuff. We actually did a bunch of stuff for Octopus. We did a bunch of stuff kind of all around. And then we ended up doing a record in my folks' house. And that was her first EP or second EP, really. All of these things were kind of happening at the same time. There was a little bit of overlap between the studio outside of London and Octopus. And then that was the last place I was working before I, I moved. Mm. Let's talk about the move. Leading up to the move, were you nervous to come to America? Yeah. It was definitely nerve-wracking, but exciting as well. I was nervous because I was leaving everything I really knew, all of my friends, my family, the place that I'd grown up and knew like the back of my hand, and coming to somewhere where I really didn't know a lot of people. And I had come out and met some people. I met some people with studios and saw an opportunity that maybe I would be able to do some work here and it would be a smoother transition. And it turns out that it still took a couple years, as I've heard people say before, if you move to a new place, it takes a few years until you are fully settled. Yeah. So, <laughs> obviously, the UK and the United States have a gazillion things in common and, and shared values and uh, across the board. But culturally, let's face it, I mean, there's cultural differences between the East Coast and the West Coast in the United States, for sure. Right. What were some of the things that kind of threw you for a loop when you got here? What are the things that made you go, oh, oh, right, okay, I am in America? The at attitude was definitely more like get up and go here, which I really loved. I like that. That's definitely more my mindset of just do it. If you want to do something, just go and do it. And obviously, it's easier for some than others, but I, th I think just seeing that kind of a go-getter attitude was was something that I didn't really see quite as much of back home. Mm. So that was really nice to see that. I have this fond memory of, I was in a, in a band on Warner Brothers called Seven Day Diary, and we were working with Gil Norton, English producer, mm -hmm. engineer. And Gil came to San Francisco to do pre-production. And I remember a new Costco opened up in San Francisco and we took him there because we'd, you know, we'd been going there and shopping there. And I will never forget the look on his face when we walked in. He was just in awe of its size, of the variety of everything. He was just like in shock. And I was like, yeah, I guess, I guess things are a little not so big in England. And uh, sure enough, when I went to England, I, I had right. the same reaction. I was in awe of like how compact everything was. And because that, you know, that had been my first time leaving the continent 
going to England in, in 94, 93 or whatever it was to record. So anyways, were you in shock of how big things were? Yes. And just how much space there was. Like, for example, I still follow a page of a company in the UK called MJQ and they do like listings of gear and also studio rentals. And I'll see a room that's like maybe a quarter the size of this place and they want like two and a half thousand pounds a month for it. And I'm like, man, you know, I'm like, that's insane. So space is a huge thing that was really shocking to come here and be like, hey, if you want to buy a building that's the size of a city block, like you can probably find that. And it's not going to be in the nicest neighborhood in the world, but you could find that if you want. Because cost of living in Philadelphia is much different than London. Yes. Actually, that's a huge thing that I found. The quality of life that you could achieve here seemed much better. Like the difference from what you would make to what you pay to live uh -huh. was crazy. It could have been 70, 80, 90 percent of what you make goes to paying your rent and your bills in London, unless you are doing something really crazy. But not a lot of people were. And here it's it's definitely nowhere near that. You know, it's like you can actually save some money. And, and I remember growing up always seeing people talking about, oh, yeah, I'm just, you know, I've got a studio and I, I just bought this new lunchbox and I'm going to fill it with all these things. I'm thinking like, well, how do you how do you pay your rent and then do that as well? That just didn't quite compute. And then coming over, you see there's a there's more of a difference. Yeah. In that. Did you find it difficult to get settled and get integrated into not only American life, but audio life, studio life. Yeah, it was definitely a shock. The place I started working at was huge. Like it was a really huge place. They did a lot of big band and stuff like that, big room. And it was tough walking in and all of a sudden going from having a Soundcraft ghost and a few outboard mic pre's into like Digi 192s to having a Ne 5088 and a patch bay and all this kind of stuff that I had some experience with, but not anything of that kind of nature of being like, okay, I'm gonna plug into this compressor and this EQ on, on the way in. Like anything I would do before would like be board EQ on the way in, nothing crazy. But this was like, oh, I want the 1073 and the CL1B and this, that, and the other. And it was just kind of like a toy store and getting used to being able to do anything was was kind of cool. Were you intimidated at all by attitudes of people? I mean, you come from a place where maybe people are a little more polite in some ways. Americans can be a little brusque, you know? A little bit, but I think I'd always had that growing up looking fairly young in studios. People being like, who's this kid taking my session? You're the engineer. You look young. <laughs> and then coming here and having a bit of that attitude and then pulling up sounds and then being like, oh, okay, you know, what's up? You can, you make me sound good. And, and so there was a little bit of that. And I honestly have to say, I do feel like I have an advantage with the accent that people seem to trust me more, which they should not. They absolutely should not. <laughs> but, but, you know, I have definitely used that to my advantage for sure. Yeah. And do you think it's because Americans upon first meeting an English person tend to give them the benefit of the doubt a little quicker? I think so. Straight up. Yeah, I, I really do. I think it's disarming when someone speaks like this. So they just kind of maybe don't know quite what to make or I don't know. But then I come in, I pull up some sounds and they're like, oh, we sound good. We like how we sound. And at the end of the day, you do that and then you're a, you're a good hang. That's all you, I mean, you need to be the good hang first and foremost, and, and then you need to be able to get the sounds. But I think those two things together helped and allowed me to, to step into that situation in a way that maybe I wasn't prepared to do a couple of years previously. I personally found the age thing early on in my career very challenging because these older dudes would come in. I did this acapella session and these guys were incredible. They were called Talk of the Town they walked in and they took one look at me and they were like, you're the engineer. <laughs> like who hired this 12 year old to come in here and work with us. And then, then I quickly disarmed them by getting good sounds and they were like, Oh, okay. All right. Mm -hmm. We like you now. That's okay. But it's, it's intimidating. It's frustrating. 
But what's funny is, is, and you're not quite there yet because you still have a youthful quality to mm-hmm. your appearance, whereas I'm starting to look a little more gruff and gray and and that can be used to one's advantage too, because you walk right. into a room, people see gray hair and they go, oh, okay, he must know what he's doing. Right. <laughs> I may not have an English accent, but I do have the gray hair to, <laughs> to, to get me in the door. Whatever works for you, you have to use it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the studio, Treacle Mine. First of mm-hmm. all, Treacle, I had to look it up, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> so Treacle is kind of a, a sugary sweet substance right yes i think it's the same as molasses what you might call molasses over here okay and man it's it's funny honestly the fact that you looked it up was kind of part of my plan with coming up with the name in a weird way i'm quite impulsive and i was sitting this was the name of the studio back in london too and i was sitting down i was trying to think of a name and i said to my friend treacle mine and he said that's the dumbest thing i've ever heard and i went great we're going to use it. I was like, that's exactly what I wanted. I wanted something that would stick in your mind and you go like, oh yeah, it's that weird name. I don't know what it means. And then you're immediately interested in it because you don't know what it means. Well, no offense, but (laughs) at at first glance, I was like, treacle, doesn't that have something to do with a bathroom? (laughs) And that's why I was like, I better look that up because that doesn't seem right. And then when I saw it, I was like, oh, okay. Now it totally makes sense. I'm sure there are marketing people shouting at their stereos right now being like, that's crazy. It needs to be easy to know what it means. That doesn't work like that. And I'm sure it doesn't. But yeah, it was actually, it came from the BBC used to do these April Fool's jokes. They did a couple of documentaries and one was they went to the spaghetti fields in Italy and they had people harvesting spaghetti off trees and stuff. And it was like an hour long documentary or something about something totally made up that was broadcast on april the first as an april fool's joke and another one of them they went to the treacle mines in wales and they just had people underground like you know mining for treacle which is not something that you do you know it's like tree sap or refined sugar or semi-refined sugar or something like that so i just thought of that name and it stuck i'm stubborn in that way i was like this is it this is the one and it just stuck well tell me about treacle mine philadelphia the, the building you're in and how you came across it. Are you renting? Do you own it? Tell me all the details. I have a, a one room rented in a, in a big warehouse and there's a bunch of other studios in here and a bunch of other businesses and other things. There's like t-shirt company, I think, and photography studio and like 10 other music studios. Mm. I found myself in here because there came a time at my spot where I was before where it didn't make sense for me to be there so much anymore it was actually believe it or not i was listening to a guest on your show and they said something like i learned what is most important to have a setup of your own and at that time all of my stuff was in this other studio in their smaller room and in i wasn't able yes correct oh, okay and i wasn't able to work when i wanted and i wasn't able to use my own gear to do stuff that i wanted not at their cost mm-hmm. essentially So it just was starting not to make a huge amount of sense. So I had said to those guys, hey, I'm going to move some of my stuff and get a spot. And so I was looking around at spots. And then my friend called me and said, hey, I'm building a new place. You should come and check it out. And I was like, oh, I'm looking for a place, actually. And he was like, great, come. There's there's other rooms in this in this place. So I met up with him and saw the place that he was building five doors down in this warehouse. And it was a big another big place and spoke with the landlord of the of the whole building and looked at a couple places and looked at this room and looked at some smaller rooms and was kind of umming and ahhing and you know this was a kind of a trustful if you will of jumping into having my own space again and i was like man maybe i just get the smaller one or maybe i do get the bigger one and trust that i'm gonna be okay and i had a few records that i was in the process of mixing and so i saw that little chunk of money that was earmarked to come my way and i thought fuck it, I'm just going to get the slightly bigger room. I came in and I'd seen there's these big windows. It's like 19 foot ceilings. I was like, this is the place. Wooden floors. I was like, this is amazing. And so that's how I ended up here. And sound transmission between spaces. How is that? Yes. Oh, terrible. Oh, <laughs> but, but it's, it's not good. No, it's, it's okay. When I first moved in, the guy basically said, hey, if you're making noise, it's up to the people that move in around you if they're okay with that 
and I was one of the first studios on this row. And so I came in and I was like, I'm going to be making some noise. You know, I will be playing drums. There will be drums here. There will be that kind of stuff. And everyone else is cool. There's two other sets of studios down here. And I hear their 808s sometimes, but like I was cutting strings the other day and I texted the guy like, hey man, really sorry. I'm cutting strings. Can you turn your sub down a little bit? He's like, yeah, man, no worries. And he turns the sub down and we can keep going. And same thing if we're doing drums and they're trying to cut a vocal, we'll happy to work with them. Communication. Communication is key. So yeah, I, I moved in here and I built it out. I was like, I have two weeks to build it out. And then I have to make this record with this person. And obviously, it's taken two years, two and a half years to get to where we are now, but we were semi-operational in two weeks, loaded all my gear back into a flight case with the help of two friends, carried it up, put it in the space and was operating with some acoustical treatment. And then my idea was basically nothing in here is built in. So everything, if we need to move, if they turn around and sell the building or triple the rent tomorrow, everything comes off the wall and we can put it in a van and move somewhere else. Now, in the course of the last three years, the size of the van that we, we need has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger. You're going to need about four vans now. Yeah, so, so there's that. Yeah, just slowly built up over time. It's an all-in-one room facility. So I'm right here with my console. I have an attack wall, which you probably can't see right here. Of oh, you got the uh, ASC tube traps? I actually built them. They're not probably quite the same quality that they make, but they work really well. Uh huh. The original plan was to make an attack wall and I ran out of money, as you do. And so when the pandemic hit, I had a little bit of money that I had saved up and I finally had some downtime when I was like, okay, I'll build the attack wall. And that was like the second round of acoustics, more clouds and stuff like that. Prior to starting our call, I was complimenting you on your acoustic absorbers behind you. They look great. Thank you. I wish the audience could see what I'm seeing, but you said that's something you do. So you're, you're into building your own acoustic treatments. Yeah. Back in London, when we built the space, I was like, I want to build some treatments. And I'd seen people with the fiberglass wrapped totally in fabric. And I was like, that's cool and all. But like, if you're going to do that, let's make it really nice with a nice wooden frame and finished really nicely. It's something that you want to keep forever. And it looks nice. And I think the look of a place helps people feel comfortable in it. It's definitely part of the vibe. So I, I always wanted it to look nice and be a little bit nicer than just like fabric wrap panels. Do you think the artists that come in to work with you ever look at the open room concept? And if they've never recorded in that situation, have they raised questions like, well, how does this work? Aren't we supposed to be in isolated rooms? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely a thing. And having done a lot of recording of jazz stuff with everyone in the same room, sometimes on headphones, sometimes not on headphones, the big band stuff, all of that, I got really used to managing the bleed and and being able to get cool sounds with everyone in the same room being like clever with mic choice and placement and hey maybe we face your guitar amp this way and we have a gobo here and with the drums are here and hey if you'd play those cymbals light and you you play that kit like that i can up the gain on these microphones and you'll find it's a bigger sound and you might like this and being like record a little snippet and then showing them and so it's just generally the stuff i do i end up being really lucky that the people are cool about it Having an open room concept too, and having everything somewhat mobile, we'll just say. Yes. Mm -hmm. If you get a wild hair, I mean, you might say, you know what? I have a brainstorm. Let's turn the whole room around and do it in a completely mm -hmm. different way. You can do that. Yeah. We could do anything. We're free to be able to do whatever we want. Now, you know, there's a rack of gear and there's a couple tape machines and this, that, and the other. It's getting harder to make those changes on the fly, but yeah, we're open to do whatever we need. You listen to the show, so you probably knew I was going to ask you about this, so I hope you're prepared to answer this. <laughs> Tell me about where you're at with finances in regards to the studio and survival and the whole nine yards. Where are you at? For the first time recently, I'm finally getting a little more comfortable, I have to say. There was a period of time working for very little money and working very long hours, working for other people and doing that kind of stuff. And that was really tough. You know, it was tough to save any money. It was always worrying. Am I going to pay my rent? Am I going to be able to get food, do all this stuff? And that was another reason for getting my own space. And I share with some really awesome people. A lot of that reason was I was saying no to a lot of records because they couldn't afford the studio that I was at. And so to be able to be like, hey, I really want to make this record with my friends 
the financial freedom to be able to work within budgets, having a space has just been super liberating. And mm. I've been very lucky and I'm super grateful that the ball has kind of gotten rolling to a point now where work is coming in and I'm not having to do the thing where you spend half the month looking for work and half the month working. Now it's more like, oh, I'm working most of the month and people are calling and by the time I finish one project, someone's like, hey, let's mix this or let's go and record this or we have a few shows here, let's go and do that, you know. So I'm lucky that things have become more self-sustaining and actually the overhead here is low. I share with two other musicians, Arjun Dubey and Logan Roth and also my wife and we work on their project here, we work on her project here, we produce for other people here and, and having this group of people, this collective allows us to keep the overheads like really low for what we end up getting. So been very lucky. Now your space looks rather large. And one thing that I've encountered here working at home is we only have so much room mm -hmm. in this house. And then I only have so much room for me personally. So it presents a way for me to stop buying so much and, you know, concentrate on what I really need. My temptation with a big space would be, oh, we've got the space. Uh, yeah, just mm -hmm. let's get it. Whatever. We'll put the boxes over there. Like I'm running out of places to put boxes now. Mm -hmm. So I'm just like, okay, we need to really get rid of stuff to bring new stuff in. And yeah, you've got all this space. So the temptation's there for you. How do you handle it? Oh, not well. Um, I, <laughs> I give into t temptation on that level easily. For example, tape machines. I was like, wouldn't it be nice to have a tape machine? I wanted a two inch and I couldn't find one. So I got a quarter inch instead to mix down to. I was like, this is, this is great fun. And then I found the two inch machine and here's the two inch machine. It's like, oh, talking to someone the other day and, and they're like, I'm looking for a vibraphone. And like, well, actually I have one. So I ended up buying the vibraphone and like, it's no, I'm, I'm, I'm not good with that in any way, shape or form. I find I get a space and then I fill it with stuff. And it's not crazy. It's stuff that is necessary, you know, or at least I pretend is necessary. And I, I see it as an investment in a way. I try and be a little bit careful in buying things that will hold their value or, or become more valuable and really are assets. Like, hey, if you have a, a nice two-inch tape machine and you maintain it, it's going to become more valuable. And so I try and be smart about buying things like that. But I definitely have a gear issue that's for sure <laughs> so you probably spend a fair amount of time online looking at gear is it that you want the gear and you want to incorporate it into your workflow or is it that you just want to try it it's a little bit of both i find gear for me is a problem solver uh-huh and an asset really an investment or at least that's what i tell myself so <laughs> i'm doing a record and i really want some cool outboard effects well, let me buy a memory man or let me, you know, <laughs> get this kind of thing and hey, we'll have fun. And if I don't like it, I'll sell it and I'll level with you. I don't think I've ever actually successfully sold anything other than a bunch of mic stands and stuff when I left the UK and could only ship one flight case worth of stuff. But everything gets used. Like really, I'm, I try and be good with that. I mix on the console. I mix with the outboard effects. I mix to the quarter inch when I can. We use stuff. I find I try and buy stuff to get a sound. So like I really wanted a glockenspiel because I was listening to a bunch of old Travis records. That I think Chad Blake mixed and there's like really cool sounds and like glock hitting certain rhythmic things. I'm like, this is dope. That's a cool sound. I'll end up with a glockenspiel. And then it was like, man, I, I want a vibraphone. I want that, but like big and lush and all these crazy tones and we'll find a vibraphone and, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. Well, I would assume that your wife is very forgiving of it because of being an artist herself. Yes. I'm very, very, very lucky in that regard. She's really awesome. She's super talented, just amazing. And she, she doesn't do the thing, I guess, where she says, oh, that's a new box. That's a new piece of gear. What are you getting? I'm like, oh, it's, you know, it's a nice microphone. It'll, it'll suit your voice really nicely or something like that. Yeah. You know? I got it for us. She, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she actually, when I moved, my friend had a space echo and we used it all the time. And it was incredible. And obviously that stayed in the UK. And she, for one birthday and Christmas, 
bought me a 201 and i mean this is just the best gift in the world wow really. i mean i can't ask for uh for anything more from yeah. her her support i always have the trouble of you know my wife will come to me and say uh, we really need some ideas for your birthday. If you don't volunteer, you're going to get underwear. Right. And so I always feel guilty, though, because I, I always say, well, especially if she says, my parents want to know what you want for your birthday. I'm like, right. everything I want is way too expensive. Yes. And, and would be crazy <laughs> to ask somebody to give that to you. Right. So although that said, this RE20 that I'm talking on, was a gift from my wife and my kids uh, oh, for amazing. one of my birthdays. So that's awesome. I treasure it. Well, we are at a time I've really enjoyed talking with you. And for the audience, you want to check out what Michael is doing at treaclemindrecording.com. Obviously, that link will be in the show notes and you can check it all out there. Any parting thoughts before we uh, sign off? Thank you so much for having me on. I truly enjoy listening to your show. It's the type of thing I will I will listen in bed and you'll say something or someone will say something I'll be like yeah yeah you know and I'll be like exclaiming <laughs> it's really nice to hear everyone's perspective on stuff and and hear the stories and hear motivational things and it's it's just really awesome really awesome oh, so thank you excellent. for having me. well thank you I'm glad you're not you know laying there listening to me going no no <laughs> <laughs> that would be that's not the effect I'm going for right so <laughs> Well, Michael, thank you so much. You take care and uh, appreciate the time. Thank you. You as well. Thanks for having me. Okay. Talk to you later. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Michael Cumming here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I always appreciate it. Uh, remember, guest suggestions. Those are supposed to come from the guest suggestion form I've conveniently placed at workingclassaudio.com. Check it out. Fill it out. Make a suggestion. I would love to hear from you. That's all for me today, though. I want to thank the crew. You know who that is. Anne-Marie Plow on the editing. Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song. And naturally, Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.